everybody welcome to the show the lovely lovely show um a lot of stuff to talk about today got some interesting breaking news that i'm going to dive into in just a second for you um we are going to go back a little bit i haven't uh, yet commented on the bob woodward story i think there's a pretty pretty definitive takeaway i have from that story that i'm going to share with you um, Paul Krugman of New- the New York Times went viral for being a complete moron. Uh, Jake Tapper pressed Joe Biden on NAFTA and trade. I thought that was actually a pretty interesting segment that uh, I'll cover with you. Um, Ted Cruz is trying to help Trump win re-election, and so his approach is, how about I go after Bernie Sanders? Don't really understand that. Don't really understand that at all. And then later on in the show, we got Tucker Carlson, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald. There's a lot of stuff um, to dive into. And the sad state of affairs, somehow we've even fallen from 2016 because a majority of voters have a view about Biden and Trump that's just, that's just insane. I can't believe we're in this position or even in a worse position than we were in 2016. All right, so without further ado, let's get started and... I'll do a little bit of breaking news for everybody first. So a little bit of breaking news for everybody. I thought this was pretty interesting and hilarious. But Donald Trump has agreed to do a Joe Rogan-moderated presidential debate. So Tim Kennedy, who was just on Joe Rogan's show, said the following. On my podcast with Joe Rogan, he offered to moderate a debate Between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, it would be four hours with no live audience. Just the two candidates 
cameras and their vision of how to move this country forward. Who wants this? Hashtag debates, hashtag election 2020. Donald Trump responded, I do. So Donald Trump is down for a Joe Rogan moderated debate. And as I talk to you guys right now, um, Joe Rogan is trending over this. And Joe Rogan, you know, he actually seemed like he liked the idea in the podcast with Tim Kennedy. He said he would, quote, 100% be down to do it. Is it something that would actually happen? Is there even a small chance it would happen? I'll put it at 10%. I'll put it at a 10% chance it happens because a lot of people might not know the backstory of this, but Joe has spoken about it publicly um, within the past few months or so. After Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan's podcast and it blew up and, you know, you read the comments and there's a lot of people who are like, hey, I thought Bernie was crazy. I actually love him and I'm going to vote for him. All the other Democratic candidates were like, oh, I want positive attention. (laughs) I want to go viral. I want people to like me. And so they all reached out to Joe Rogan, basically asking him, like, can I come on your podcast? Now, they deny it. He already spoke about it publicly, and he, he has evidence of it. So, I mean, there's no reason to release the evidence because who really cares? But, you know, Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, Joe Biden, all of these characters wanted to get on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he, he basically said no because he's not interested in them. He was interested in three candidates, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, and Bernie Sanders. He found those three the most interesting. And so we talked to him. Everybody else can kick rocks. So now I get the sense, and I'm just guessing here, but I get the sense that with Trump agreeing to something like this, I feel like the Biden people might view the forum overall as like more pro-Trump, more leaning in Trump's direction. Fair or unfair, I think that's how they would view it. And they would also think like, you just said no in the primary for a one-on-one podcast, so uh, now I'm supposed to go in there to have a debate with you as the moderator? So I get the sense that the Biden people would shy away, and the Biden people wouldn't want to do it. But that would be a fascinating podcast. I think it would break all records. Um, and honestly, I know for a fact, Joe. Bi- uh, I was going to say Joe Biden, Joe Rogan would ask, way better questions than the idiots in mainstream media. Way better. You know, they ask the stuff that they think they're supposed to ask, and they all have, you know, it's biased from a a pro-establishment perspective. And it's either that or they try to do the stupid gotcha questions about dumb stuff. You know, Joe would only ask questions that he's, he's interested in the answers to. And a lot of that would be around policy. And a lot of that might be around other stuff. But I think it would all be interesting and relevant and pertinent. And I I would love to see it. I would love to see it. But I highly doubt it would actually happen. Even though the President of the United States is down, I do think the Biden team is going to pump their brakes and and say no. And I really do think that they, they would view Joe's podcast as more biased in a pro-Trump direction. But honestly, I don't even think that's fair. You know, you watch Joe's podcast for the past two years, three years, four years, 
and you learn very quickly, he's all over the place with this stuff. Like, he'll go after all the politicians. He'll also give a lot of them credit, you know? He likes Tulsi. He likes Yang. He likes Bernie. Um, He's both gone after and made defenses of both Trump and Biden, respectively, you know, depending on what the news of the day is. That's just the kind of person that he is. As, as Michael Brooks used to say, Joe Rogan represents kind of like an actual centrist, like sort of like an apolitical person who still kind of follows politics and is interested, but doesn't go too deep on, on, theor- on, on political theory or the underlying philosophies. He's, he's kind of like your average Joe, no pun intended. <laughs> and and he, one thing about him that I've realized all along is that he's incredibly curious. Like he's always curious about stuff in a way, honestly, in a way that's almost unique. It's almost like a childlike curiosity that has lasted his entire life. And I think that leads to him having interesting podcasts and interesting conversations and making interesting points because, you know, very few people would do the deep dives on the various topics that he likes to do deep dives on. But it is kind of funny too. And I'm sure if you catch him in a moment of honesty, he would admit this, that like you got this podcast where, you know, Joey Diaz might be talking about eating a hooker's ass (laughs) or Duncan Trussell might talk about, you know, doing, ayahuasca with a shaman in the middle of the jungle or, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Joey Diaz talking about robbing somebody or kidnapping somebody when he's younger. It's like all that stuff can happen, but also the president of the United States is like, I'd be down. I'd be down for a podcast. That'd be interesting to me. So I I think it's it's got a, a very unique platform and I would love to see this. I hope the Biden people accept but I highly, highly doubt that they will. Okay. All right, next. Bob Woodward. Legendary journalist Bob Woodward has been meeting with and talking to Trump for for quite a while now. He had like over a dozen visits with him. Trump would talk to him on the phone for a long time. And, you know, it's weird because I don't know why Trump felt so comfortable, but he opened up to Bob Woodward in a way that, you know, he doesn't usually do with people. I, I don't know what led him to do that. Maybe he felt like Bob Woodward was secretly a big time MAGA guy. And so he's like, okay, this is my boy. I don't know, but he opened up in a way that now is, is backfiring. And Bob Woodward recorded a lot of the conversations that he had with Trump. There's all these tapes now of him saying things that are pretty incriminating. Um, here's what he said about COVID in February. It goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air. That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. This is more deadly. This is 
five per, you know, this is five percent versus one percent and less than one percent. You know, so this is deadly stuff. Well, I think Bob really, to be honest with you, sure, I want you. To I be. wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. Now, the reason why these tapes are devastating is that there's video of him in late February, so after these phone calls, and in March, where he's saying the exact opposite publicly. So behind the scenes, he's talking about, like, it's airborne, it's deadly, and it's more deadly than even your strenuous flus. You know, like 5% death rate versus 1% or less than 1%. This is what he's saying privately. Publicly, he's comparing it to the flu. He's saying repeatedly, it's just like the flu. You can get over it. You know, it's just like the flu. And he, was, he would make these comparisons, too, on Twitter. He would say, like, X number of people died per year from the flu, and we only have X number that have died from COVID. Why is, it, why is everybody making this out to be such a big deal? He, he didn't say, like, he knew it was airborne back in February, but... There were still debates going on about it publicly, and the media had contradictory stuff way after February, March, April, May. I mean, I think even today there's still some debate and, you know, differing views on whether or not this thing really is airborne. But this is what he was saying behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, he's like, it's, it's airborne, it's deadly, it's worse than the flu. And publicly, he didn't say anything about airborne. And he was downplaying it and saying, it's, it's just like the flu. It's just like the flu. And then, see, the admission there is, I have no idea why he would say this stuff to Bob Woodward. What do you, th- what do you, what do you think? He was looking out for you or something? He was going to hide for you stuff you said? He said, I always wanted to play it down because I didn't want to create a panic. There it is. There it is. He's admitting, yeah, I wasn't telling the truth. And I knew I wasn't telling the truth. I was doing that on purpose. So that's an admission that he he completely lied. That what he was saying publicly was different from his private position. This is is exactly what Hillary Clinton said in 2016 that WikiLeaks released where it blew up correctly. It was a scandal because she said, yeah, you have public positions, you have private positions. Duh. This is what she admitted. Trump is doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I had a public position. COVID's not that bad. It's just like the flu. We're going to be all right. We're going to get over it. Private position was, oh, my God, it's airborne, it's really deadly, it's way worse than the flu, look out. I didn't want to create a panic. I didn't want to tell people the truth about COVID. I didn't want to tell them the truth about COVID. That explains very well why we are where we are today, why we have over 190,000 Americans dead from COVID. And he knew it was bad behind the scenes, but publicly... He took the opposite approach, downplayed it, and, by the way, dragged his feet when it comes to policy. The thing that he always points to is like, oh, I took it seriously early. That's why I banned flights from China. Yeah, but it was already here in large numbers when you banned the flights from China. It was already ripping through the country. So do you understand how this works? It's not like you could only catch COVID-19 from somebody who was in Wuhan. Do you not understand that? This is bad, guys. 
He's in many. I always played it down. I always played it down. I didn't want to create a panic. So I hid the truth from people. Listen, we're adults. We're Americans. Your number one job as president should be to tell us the truth. That also, just so everybody understands, in the, in like, the playbook for a public health emergency, rule number one is, like, tell the truth. Because if you, how many lives could have been saved if you told the truth from the beginning? If you had the president of the United States saying publicly exactly what he said in that phone call with Bob Woodward, there would be way fewer people dead. Way fewer people dead. For sure. You know, we've been saying it for a while. I wish from the beginning of this pandemic, Trump slapped some Trump logos on masks and started selling them on his website and started wearing a mask everywhere. I love wearing masks. I wear it all the time. This is what you got to do when we're in a situation like this. It's the patriotic thing to do. It's the right thing to do. So then the Republicans would be wearing masks. But also, as partisan as the Democrats are, and they are very partisan, early on, yes, of course, everybody was like, it's a pandemic. Of course, uh, I should take it seriously. On the Democratic side, let's be honest, guys, they're more likely, they're more willing to believe in science. So if, he, if Trump could get the Republicans to all wear masks and the Democrats would have done it either way, well, then we'd be in a much better situation than we are right now, now, wouldn't we? See, the thing about this, which it really kind of pounded the gavel in my head on this, I thought for the longest time, and you could say, oh, I'm naive or, or whatever, but I tend to take people at their word. So I, I never assume malicious intent when something else would explain it. So in the case of Trump, I kind of leaned in the direction of whatever he's saying at the moment, he actually believes in the moment. Like, that, that's the direction I leaned in. Even though he might contradict himself, even though he might be all over the place, whatever he's saying in the moment, I think, like, no, no, that's actually, like, what he believes, and he's telling you what he feels is true in the moment. After listening to this, no, 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 no. I was wrong. So he was lying, and he knew he was lying. He was lying, and it was a strategy to lie. He was going out there, seamlessly making this argument that COVID was like the flu, downplaying it repeatedly, but behind closed doors, he knew. He was like, oh, oh, this is bad. And once you, once you destroy, you know, your trust with the public, and he had done that a long time ago, to be clear, but once you do that, why should anybody take anything you say seriously? We can't trust a goddamn word you say. We can't. We can't trust a word you say. Now, I'm not saying I trust Biden or I trust the Democrats. I don't. But obviously nobody should trust a goddamn word Trump says because this proves he'll go out there and say whatever's politically convenient to him, but behind closed doors, he could be singing a very different tune. This is wild, man. I think this is absolutely wild. And this is a big story because I think one of the main reasons Trump is down is COVID. Probably the economy, which is imploding. All the actual indicators that matter show that. Forget the stock market. Ridiculous. Um, So it's the economy and COVID. And this is like he already was getting terrible grades on COVID from the public. And this is like nail in the coffin type stuff. 
So if I was the Democrat, I would, I would make an ad where you put the audio from the phone call and put it right next to the stuff he was saying publicly. Now, they did cut an ad, but I don't think it was a good ad because all they did was play the audio from the phone call. No, you've got to splice it back to back. Here's what he said in private. Here's what he said a month later in public. In private, this is way worse than the flu. In public, it's just like the flu. That's what you do. But, of course, Biden's team is not, they're not as savvy as I'd like them to be. But, yes, this is, I mean, this is as bad as it gets, man. This is a real, real scandal. And I'm sure that there will be more, you know, bombshells in this Woodward book. You know, I, and, and I've been saying this for quite a while now, like the John Bolton book, I don't trust John Bolton. He's a lying, psychopathic war criminal. So in the Bolton book, there's a lot of things that came out where I was like, I just simply don't believe what he's saying here. Even in Trump's, like, his family member, whatever it is, his, his niece or something wrote a book. I would imagine some of that is true, but I do think there's probably exaggerations in there. In the case of the Bob Woodward one, I mean, he's got the audio tapes to prove it, but I also just tend to, I, I would believe Woodward's claim, even if he didn't have the audio tapes. Like, they're, they're differing degrees of trustworthiness of the sources from Bolton. I don't trust at all. Trump's family member somewhere in the middle. And then Woodward's kind of high up there. So this is devastating stuff. And I think more devastating stuff is going to come out. Oh, there's one more thing I should say about this. And there's one more point I'll make here because this, you know, this was a big, angle to the story as well. A lot of people were saying, hey, Bob Woodward, what are you doing? You knew how deadly COVID was and you sat on that for book sales? Like, he could have released this at the time. That's what a lot of people were saying. Listen, I think that's a very, very fair criticism, for sure. The only thing I would caution people against is, because now a lot of actors on the right are trying to point at that and use it to override the actual substance of the story. That's where you lose me. You can make that criticism of Bob Woodward, and it's a fair criticism. But if all you're talking about is that criticism of Woodward, that means you're downplaying, denying, or ignoring the actual substance of what happened here, which is Trump lied, and as a result of that, a lot of people are dead. So just don't let the Woodward angle become the overarching story, because that's just people are deflecting to that. I, I don't agree with that. I think that's really bad to do. But I also think it is a totally legitimate criticism. I guess he would say in response that, like, hey, if I, you know, let's say I came out at that point in time, I would have never gotten the other 35 things from Trump, which you're about to hear soon. You know what I mean? Like, if you, if he releases it at the time, Trump doesn't talk to him anymore, which means the rest of the stuff that Trump said is lost because he wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been released. He wouldn't have never said it to him. So I guess he can make an argument that, like, hey, that means that we got a hell of a lot more information, which is just as important for the public good. This is a case he could make, but I do think it's kind of flimsy. At the very least, you leak it somehow to the press. And I, I think it's the right thing to do to probably get it out there because apparently Trump knew how deadly it was. Woodward knew how deadly it was. And they didn't really do enough or anything to really try to ameliorate that. So I do think that's a fair criticism. But... Don't, how does the old saying go? Don't miss the forest through the trees? Something like that. I may have just made that up. (laughs) But, yeah, don't keep your focus on the thing that actually matters, which is 
what the president did here and is totally inexcusable. Okay. Let me fix this. My beeping McBeepington. All right, we should be good. It'll actually it'll beep in like eight seconds. Watch. Okay, next. All right, let's um, let's talk a little bit about. Joe Biden and his new proposal, which should absolutely piss you off to no end. Joe Biden is seemingly continuing his mission of getting every young person and every lefty in the country to hate him. And in so far as these people will vote for him, he wants you to vote for him as you cry, I've, you know, I've heard stories about in 2016 people voting for Hillary and literally crying as they do it because they hate her so much, they despise her, but they basically sucked it up and did what they viewed as the lesser evil vote. They did what they view as their patriotic duty. But the point I've made time and time again is that a lot of people who did that this time around say, no, 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 that's it, I'm done. I'm not I, – I did the vote in 2016 – with the acting assumption that I'll never, at least I'll never have to do something like this again. At least we'll build something and, and we'll get to a point where it's not a lesser evil decision. It's let me vote for somebody I actually agree with and want to vote for. So there's a lot of people who, you know, they just can't bring themselves to do it again. I mean, there are also people who works in the other direction, too, where they didn't do the lesser evil vote in 2016, but this time... They're like, no, I've seen four years of Trump, and, and I'm fine doing a lesser evil vote. But either way, what's clear is any kind of attempt to reach out to the left, it's been placating. It's been head pats, you know? And the, uh, the unity commissions, where they all got together, and it was the left and the center, and let's find some things we can agree on, and let's release our policy proposals. First of all, the proposals weren't even that good to begin with, and the most important ones were left out. But second of all, I don't, like, I don't even believe that he's going to do any of these things. Like, you did the Unity Commission, and now you're just giving him something else that he can ignore <laughs> and not pursue. So it, I find it kind of crazy how easy it is to, to placate the left. And every now and then, you know, Biden goes out there, and he lets you know what he's really about. So take a look at this. Joe Biden says he may further increase increase military spending if elected. Increase military spending. Increase it. Increase it. So they say that on the campaign trail, Biden said Thursday that if elected president, he might increase military spending even beyond the Pentagon's current record budget of $738 billion dollars. Biden said this in an interview with the outlet Stars and Stripes, quote, we have to focus more on unmanned capacity, drones, cyber and IT in a very modern world that is changing rapidly. By the way, here's some more on this. 
Biden said conditions in Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq are so complicated that he cannot promise full withdrawal of troops in the near future. He supports a, quote, small U.S. military footprint whose primary mission will be to facilitate special operations against the Islamic State or ISIS and other terror organizations. So just so everybody understands, that is literally exactly the Obama approach. It's exactly the Trump approach, and it's the Biden approach. So the idea is you you dismiss, take off the table the idea of full withdrawal. That's totally off the table. We're not going to get out. No matter what, we're not going to get out. And then the the debate becomes, okay, how many troops do you want to leave there? And what Trump has kind of settled on is 3,000, I believe, in Afghanistan. He wants to take it from 8,000 to 3,000, thereabouts. And Biden wants pretty much the same. As he increases military spending overall, we're already at a record clip, $738 billion. He says, no, let's increase that. And let's modernize the military. By the way, just so everybody understands, the whole, like, like wanting to modernize our nukes is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Why? Because the way that the nuclear systems work now, it's on floppy disks. Now, you might say, oh, my God, that's so antiquated, that's so old, that's so dumb. Why? Guys, it's hack-proof. Nobody could hack a floppy disk. Any kind of upgrading of our, our nuclear weapon system, you're introducing the possibility that somebody can, can hack into them. So, no, you should not at all want to update our, our, our nuclear we- weapon system. That's, that's a terrible idea. Now, by the way, one of the things in the Woodward book is Trump saying, oh, we got like a new nuclear weapon, new nuclear toy. Like he kind of let it slip to Bob Woodward like, oh, not only did I rebuild the military, he thinks that the military was depleted beforehand, it wasn't. Not only did I rebuild the military, I got this new nuclear weapon system. It's a top secret nuclear weapon system. So Trump's probably already doing this kind of stuff. But from Biden, he's saying, I'm going to, yeah, increase military spending. That's what I want to do. We're spending more now on the military than we were at the peak of the war on terror. And CNN idiots have the nerve to tell you the military industrial complex isn't a real thing. My ass cheeks, it isn't a real thing. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, all of these contractors, defense, it's really offense contractors, they make so much money from war. Our welfare in this country is warfare. We have jobs tied to the military industrial complex in every single state in the country. So all these politicians, yeah, maybe in theory stopping war is a good thing, but I don't want to lose the jobs in my district. I just gave no big contracts to another defense contractor. We got tanks sitting in the middle of the desert in Nevada right now, collecting dust. This is what we do. We spend insane amounts of money on the military. And now Trump is going to keep increasing it with the Democrats' approval and blessing. And Biden's saying the same thing. Yeah, I want to increase it. Well, that'll also be approved because the Democrats will vote for it under a Biden administration. And some Republicans will break ranks and say, yeah, of course. One thing we agree on is wasting all of the money that we have, all the resources that we have on the military and on being the world's sole superpower and on imperialism. Guys, this should piss you off so much because look at the misplaced priorities. 
look at the misplaced priorities. Compare us to the rest of the developed world. We spend more than the next 10 biggest militaries on Earth combined. And none of them are even really a threat to us. We do all that at the same time we're the only developed country without universal health care. We got all the, we, the amount it would cost to cover free college for the entire country, free college, is less than just last year's increase in military spending. You understand that? It costs about $60 billion to do free college for the country. Just the increase in the military spending last year was between 80 and $100 billion. Not a single person in Washington, D.C. or in the media said, how are we going to pay for that? How are we going to pay for it? Nobody said it. Nobody said it. They only trot out that canard when it's something for you. Healthcare, college, universal basic income, anything for you. Infrastructure, you know, um, some sort of jobs bill, anything for you. I, I, we can't afford it. We've got to be deficit neutral. We can't afford it. Spending billions per month in Iraq and Afghanistan. We wasted $7 trillion when all is said and done in Iraq. $7 trillion. Joe Biden, who should be begging for the forgiveness of the American people and the Iraqi people, he's saying increase military spending. Increase it. As if our infrastructure here at home doesn't get a grade of D+. We're supposed to be, you know the number one country in the world, and our frickin' roads and bridges are crumbling. Our airports are trash. And nobody's talking about rebuilding everything. Why isn't it a, a national goal to do a giant infrastructure project? I mean, the country's in dire straits right now. And nobody's talking about a new New Deal. Let's rebuild all of our infrastructure, take it from a grade of D-plus to a grade of A-plus. Let's make it the best in the world. Let's make it the envy of the world. Nobody's talking about this stuff. But they are talking about increasing military spending, staying in Iraq and Afghanistan. Who does this appeal to? Guys, I've told you the poll numbers on this show over and over. I mean, there was a poll even going back to like 2013. That's so long ago now. But even in 2013, the war in Afghanistan was more unpopular than the war in Vietnam. Vietnam! And that's viewed today as, oh my God, what a terrible war. What a terrible war. Afghanistan is already more unpopular than that. It had like a 19% approval rating or something. Nobody wants to be there. Who are you appealing to, Joe Biden? He thinks he's being politically savvy by like, no, they can't attack me as being anti-military because I'm going to say I want to increase military spending. Gotcha, gotcha. But why do you assume that their attack on you has any merit in the first place? Why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't you be like, you're damn right I want to cut the military and I want to spend it on infrastructure and I want to spend it on health care. You're damn right I want to. Have you seen the numbers? Have you seen that it's more than the next 10 biggest countries combined? Have you seen everything that we're wasting? It's, it's the Democrats all the time, it's just, I, let me become a Republican so as to avoid critique, critiques from Republicans and then they turn around and attack you anyway. It's because he does, he's not actually on the left. He doesn't actually agree with left-wing ideas. 
He doesn't agree with you, with your priorities. He's a moderate Republican. That's what he is. He voted for the Iraq War. He voted for a lot of these outsourcing deals. He voted for the Patriot Act. He's a moderate Republican. Increased military spending. I mean, what a sick joke, man. My entire adult life, every year, colossal, gargantuan amounts of money to continue bombing eight different countries. All because a lot of, Smedley Butler said it, war is a racket. A lot of people in the military-industrial complex can get wealthy from this. You know what else? We can grab oil from Iraq, as we did. Oil production shot up after our invasion and occupation, and mineral wealth in Afghanistan. And we also view it as, yes, there's a global chessboard, and it's us versus Russia, and so we're always jockeying for position to have more control in different areas so that you know, we maintain our world's sole superpower status. All of this as millions of people in this country don't even have health care as 45,000 to 60,000 people die every year because they don't have health care, as our infrastructure crumbles, as 46, 47% of Americans say they're now having, quote, serious financial problems because of COVID and the economy. And he said, increase military spending. And then they get, and then they have the nerve, they want to berate you. If you're on the left and you either don't want to vote for Joe Biden or you're not enthusiastic about voting for Joe Biden, they want to berate you. Like you're the problem. Like you did something wrong. All of that energy shaming the left should be directed at Joe Biden to do stuff like not increase the military budget and maybe cut it. Did you know if you cut the U.S. military budget in half, we would still have the biggest military in the world by far and away. In half, we have something like 900 military bases around the world. Would it really be the end of the world if we made that 450? Would that really be the end of the world? I'm so sick of the people who left punch all day long, just left punch, left punch, left punch. Maybe at some point you you have to make peace with the fact that you have a bigger beef with the people who want Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a Green New Deal. Like, you hate them and bash them more than you bash corporate Democrats if you're a voter shamer. You might want to look in the mirror and think about why that is. Could it be you're just a brainless partisan hack who's playing for a team, that team being the Democrats, and even when the Democrats are moderate Republicans, you're still like, well, I don't care, they're Democrats. Joe Biden wants to increase the military budget. So we get Trump, who wants to increase the military budget, and has, and Biden, who wants to increase the military budget. This is why I say time and time again, we don't have a Democratic Party in this country. We have a Republican Party and a diet Republican Party. That's it. All right, next. Next, baby, here we go. New York Times writer Paul Krugman went viral 
for being a moron. So he said the following. This was on the anniversary of 9-11. So it's 9-11. Hard to remember now how large the terrorist attack loomed in our national psyche. After all, in death toll, COVID-19 is already equivalent of 60 9-11s. But a few thoughts and recollections. This is the tweet right here that everybody lost it over. Overall, Americans took 9-11 pretty calmly. Notably, there wasn't a mass outbreak of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence, which could all too easily have happened. And while G.W. Bush was a terrible president, to his credit, he tried to calm prejudice, not feed it. Okay, there is so much to say about this, but right up front, let's get this out of the way. That is empirically false, verifiably untrue. Everything there is just wrong. And this is something, in the same way that there was an Obama derangement syndrome, where Republicans just hated Obama, didn't matter what he did, it didn't matter that Obama was basically a Republican president, moderate Republican president, they still hated him. He did their health care plan. It was Mitt Romney's plan. It was the Heritage Foundation plan. Heritage Foundation's plan was Newt Gingrich's plan, Chuck Grassley. He did their health care plan, and they still hate him. And they lied and called it socialized medicine. This is, the same, this is Trump derangement syndrome. It's when you hate Trump so much, and that's such a defining feature of your ideology, that you even go as far as to whitewash the crimes and, and of previous Republican presidents and even become an apologist in many ways. This is Trump derangement syndrome. George W. Bush was just as bad, if not worse, than Trump. Probably worse. Much bigger death toll. But now that's overlooked, and now he says stuff like this. So, first of all, even the idea that, oh, we didn't have an anti-Muslim sentiment that came out from this. Have you spoken to any Muslim who lived in the United States post 9-11? Any of them. Do you know any of them? Have you talked to any of them? Because they'll tell you, oh my God, life was a living hell for them. What happened in New York City alone? They were spying on all the mosques. They were spying on all of them and infiltrating them and treating them like, ooh, terrorist recruitment centers. And guess what? These programs found no evidence of any wrongdoing. But there was spying happening on the Muslim community throughout the country Definitely in New York City, for sure. We had the hearing. Remember the Peter King with the, you know, the hearings on, on Muslim Americans and terrorism? There was an increase in hate crimes. By the way, not even just an increase in hate crimes of Muslims, but it was also Sikhs, Hindus, anybody who's like brown and somewhat religious. Go talk to those people. They'll tell you. By the way, remember the, there was the uh, Sikh temple shooting that happened. This was way after 9-11, but the, yes, this was tied to that, to that kind of bigotry, to that otherizing. So that's just, and this is just non-state sanctioned violence. And it's bad, and there was an increase in it, of course, even about Ilhan Omar today, the signs we, you know, we were supposed to never forget. Looks like we've forgotten. With like a picture of the Twin Towers coming down and Ilhan Omar there. As if just because she's Muslim, 
she's somehow responsible for Osama bin Laden or Al-Qaeda? I mean, this is, this is the mindset. This is the mindset. But okay, put aside, you know, the non-state-sanctioned violence. Look at the state-sanctioned violence. As a direct response to 9-11, we waged a war on Afghanistan. We waged a war on Iraq. We tried to connect Saddam Hussein to Al-Qaeda. There was no connection. They made the BS argument. They lied us into war. And we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan to this day. To this day, we're still there. How can you say, overall, Americans took 9-11 pretty calmly? There wasn't a mass outbreak of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence, which all too easily could have happened. There's minimum 200,000 innocent Iraqi civilians dead. Minimum. Minimum. And I haven't even brought up the elephant in the room, which is torture. They ordered torture, guys. They ordered torture after 9-11. It was literally from a communist Chinese manifesto on how to torture. We killed Japanese soldiers who tortured our troops in World War II. We gave them the death penalty. We said this is a violation of international law. You can't torture people. This is unacceptable. We tortured. I'm going to read it again. Overall, Americans took 9-11 pretty calmly. Notably, there wasn't an outbreak of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence, which could all too easily have happened. And while G.W. Bush was a terrible president, to his credit, he tried to calm prejudice, not feed it. CIA black sites, torture sites, drone strikes that killed innocent civilians, locking people up at Guantanamo Bay, having no evidence of any wrongdoing. You know how a lot of people got there. This is crazy. A lot of people don't know the backstory here, but I'm such a political nerd that I read the articles that came out on this when they came out. The United States cut a deal with warlords in Afghanistan and said, hey, we were attacked on 9-11. We got to get these people back. Anytime you come across, you know, Al-Qaeda operatives, send them to us and you'll get a reward. And what happened? Afghanistan warlords did not, you know, have due process and look with a fine-tooth comb for who's al-Qaeda and who's not. They rounded up all their enemies and they shipped them to the United States. That's what happened. And they ended up in Guantanamo Bay. This is how we got stories of, like, that guy Marat Kurnaz, who was a German citizen who was locked up at Guantanamo Bay. Totally innocent. Didn't do anything wrong. He was there for years. This is why you need due process. And he's saying, oh, he tried to calm the prejudice. Our Americans' reaction to 9-11 was pretty calm. We waged illegal and offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. We're still there to this day. We're still bombing eight different countries to this day. See, this is what happens when you're a wealthy, comfortable elitist. His thing, he, likes, he talks more about economics, but like... See what happens when he steps just a little bit outside of his field? He's got like, you know, protected old white guy syndrome, comfy old white guy syndrome. He didn't experience any of these things. He didn't go to the Iraq war. He didn't go to Afghanistan. He doesn't know people who went. He doesn't have friends who are Muslim who were spied on throughout these years. 
people who were harassed by cops. He doesn't know any of it. So in his little bubble, he thinks, well, George W. Bush went out there and gave a speech and said, oh, Muslims are our brothers and sisters. This is a, you know, a perversion of the message of Islam. Islam is a religion of peace. So we're not at war with Muslims. We're only at war with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. He heard a, a speech with some flowery words, and he was like, oh, see, serious guy here, pretty calm. There's not a mass outbreak of anti-Muslim violence. Just a few wars, just a few illegal and offensive wars that killed hundreds of thousands of civilians, just some torture. We tortured some folks, as Obama would have said. And this is, just so everybody understands, this is the pundit class. This is the pundit class in the United States of America. If you think he's the only one with blind spots, oh, Jesus. They're all like this. <laughs> all of them are like this. This is the kind of viewpoint and mindset you get among elite academics in the U.S. And honestly, it's just, there's no other way to say it. It's stupid and ignorant. And he's a joke. And by the way, he came out after this, after seeing the backlash, and doubled down. He doubled down. He was like, um, I looked at the statistics from the FBI, and they claim that even though there was a slight increase in, in hate crimes against Muslims, it really was negligible. And so my broader point stands. Okay, that response does what? Ignores all of the state-sanctioned violence. If the government's spying on Muslims, you think they're going to include that in their hate crime statistics? Uh, we ourselves are guilty of it because we were spying on all Muslims after 9-11, thinking that they were all enemies to the United States. Are they going to include that in their data? No. So, and, and you're not even going to address the broader point, which is to say Americans reacted calmly when we waged illegal wars on countries that didn't attack us and we're still there to this day and we ordered torture. He didn't touch the torture. He didn't touch the illegal wars. He only brought up the hate crime statistics. And even that, he's using the worst source imaginable from the people who perpetuated a lot of this stuff. Paul, go away. Please, go away. You have no idea what you're saying, and it's sad. Okay. All right, let's... Um, I'm going to do the Jake Tapper story, and we might take a break. Let's see. Jake Tapper interviewed Biden, and he pressed him on the USMCA, which is the new version of NAFTA. Let's see what he said. Something else he did is he renegotiated NAFTA. He did. He renegotiated NAFTA. Now, when you ran for president and when Barack Obama ran for president, you both said you would renegotiate NAFTA. You didn't. He did. Nancy Pelosi said that the USMCA, which President Trump signed into law, is a, quote, victory for America's workers. Does he deserve credit for that? No, I think, remember, he, didn't, he wasn't the one that pushed that particular one that passed. The House amended the bill, amended the bill so he couldn't... By the way, it's a big deal, though. Here's what he, they amended. He was giving Pharma a way out, giving him a gigantic break, just like he's doing now with Pharma. 
if you they're building plants overseas and getting tax tax breaks for it. That's what it was about with him, and okay. they said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're but not going to do that. We negotiated NAFTA, and you didn't, is the point. I mean, because we had a Republican Congress that wouldn't go along with us renegotiating. So doesn't he deserve some credit for that? It's better. The USMCA is better than NAFTA. It is better than NAFTA. All right, so let's dissect this. I thought Biden's answer was fine until the end, where he just totally concedes. Like, oh, yeah, it's better than NAFTA. No, no, no. Listen, if I'm on Biden's staff and I'm trying to coach him on how to answer this kind of question, um, I would tell him you have to say the words, and I quote, meet the new NAFTA, same as the old NAFTA. See, Trump loves to do the whole fake populist tap dance, but in reality, his policies have not delivered on this front. Why do I say that? In his first year alone, it was over 90,000 jobs that were outsourced. The anti-outsourcing president outsourced more jobs or more jobs were outsourced under him than were under Barack Obama. So Barack Obama's last year, 87,000 jobs were outsourced. Um, Trump's first year, it was either 92 or 93,000 jobs that were outsourced. And his policies on this front are not what he's trying to pretend they are. So in other words, he might talk this outsider game, this populist game, but guys, his cabinet is filled with Wall Street people. Just like how, you know, every now and then he'll say anti-war stuff, but he, he's, got, he's surrounded by all these vicious, bloodthirsty neocons who are war criminals. So you have to, the devil's in the details. And Biden actually stumbles on the most important part of all. He says it, he just didn't say it in a very clear way. Um, in the USMCA, which I just call NAFTA 2.0, there's a giant giveaway to Big Pharma. That's the whole point of doing NAFTA 2.0. Not like, oh, I'm going to stand up for the American worker. No, the whole point was, let's do a giant giveaway to Big Pharma because Big Pharma funds you know, the entire Republican Party, but also the Democratic Party. That was the point of it. So Biden made that argument, but it was kind of like, I don't know, it wasn't clear and it wasn't punchy. And that's actually surprising because usually for him, he is punchy when he's on the sauce. And I think he is, by the way. But, like, usually he's punchy and he would be able to say it in a way like I'm saying it now. Like, the whole point in NAFTA 2.0 was the Big Pharma giveaway. That's why he did it, because they're corrupt and they're giving, giving a lot of money away to Big Pharma. That's what I would have said. But he didn't say that. He just he said it in, like, a roundabout way. Um, and I wouldn't have conceded at the end, like, oh, it's better, than, it's better than NAFTA. No, I would go with the line, meet the new NAFTA, same as the old NAFTA. And the other thing I would say is what I just told you guys, which is, if Donald Trump is really so good at uh, fighting outsourcing, why is it that there were over 90,000 jobs that were outsourced in his first year alone? Why is that? So, you know, listen, credit to Jake Tapper, because it's actually a really good question. And I, I think that Biden's not so great answer there is indicative of his staff is not really preparing him for actual interesting questions actual questions that are reasonable and make sense and are important. They're not prepped for that. They're only really prepped for, you know, Trump's really bad stuff. And uh, n none of the more nuanced takes uh, are really in prep. And, and that's a shame. But in this, in the interview, he goes on to make some points that I think are, are good. You know, like they talk about, I think they talk about the Bob Woodward audio tapes where Trump, was basically saying, like, 
COVID is way worse than the flu. It's way worse. Um, and I like to downplay it. I like to downplay it because I don't want to create a panic. He's asked about that. And on those questions, I think Biden really kind of hammers Trump in an effective way. Um, and he should lean into those issues because that's really what the election is about. I think the election ultimately is about the economy, but most importantly, COVID. And uh, with nearing 200,000 Americans dead, you got to hammer him on that all day and all night. Let him try to change the topic to law and order and rioters and looters all he wants. The polling numbers show Biden is trusted more when it comes to the protests happening right now. More people think he would calm the situation versus Trump. So he's winning on the issue that's Trump's wheelhouse, which is the issue Trump is trying to divert the election to. That's kind of amazing. But if I was Biden, I would continue to hammer away on COVID. He does a great job on that front. I would just warn his staff, man, you guys got to get a little sharper. Got to get a little sharper. Got to, you know, got to expect interesting questions like this, even if they never come. And in most instances, they won't. But it's always good to be prepared for stuff like this because I feel like this is, um, this is some of the most important stuff in the election. Just these little moments. It happened a lot with Hillary and Trump where Trump like hammered Hillary on NAFTA in the debates. And I don't know. I feel like these kinds of little moments add up over time. And then you can really get yourself into a pickle. But this is, the, you know, this is one of the first ones I've seen in the case of Biden uh, in a while. But... Yeah, sharpen that answer up a little bit. He's almost there, but not quite. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, got a lot more for you. Seriously, we're just getting started. Stay right there.
We are back, bitch. Alright, welcome back to the show, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Okay, uh, now... Where were we? Story number six. There we go. Ted Cruz went after Bernie Sanders. All right, let me set this up for you. Ted Cruz is trying to help Trump win re-election. So he released this attack ad. It's the goofiest attack ad of all time. He's going after Bernie. Let's watch. talking about is like 
Medicare for all, which is just universal health care, which would catch us up to the rest of the developed world. Every other developed country has figured this out. We haven't. Bernie proposes the solution, and your response is radical socialism. Radical socialism. Again, explain what you mean. He can't do it because if he explains what his attack is over, most people in this country would go, you know, I kind of agree with Bernie on that one. By the way, they have to totally ignore polls because the polls show almost Bernie's entire agenda is popular. On the main policy issues Bernie pushes for, he's popular. Every now and then, see, this is, what they, this is the other trick that they do. They'll pick, like, one of the few things that Bernie has a take on where he's not in the mainstream, and they'll bring that up over and over and over. I already saw Trump do it. He brought, he brought up the, uh, you know, Biden, people supporting Biden want the Boston Marathon bomber to be able to vote. Do you have any idea how excited Republicans get when they find, like, one issue where the left is not popular? Because they'll talk about that forever. They will talk about that forever. Oh, we got one. We got one where we're more popular than them. This is so rare. Let's use it. Boston Marathon bomber voting. Boston Marathon bomber voting. So, and Bernie, of course, he's uniquely principled. So, like, he'll tell you what he believes, even in the few instances where it's not popular. But most of the time it's popular, and that's why this attack ad is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Bernie is Secretary of State. Sign me up, son. What is Bernie, what was Bernie in the news for mostly when it came to the issue of foreign policy. Do you guys remember this? He was uh, in the news for Yemen and Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is doing a genocide in Yemen, killing women and babies. And Bernie Sanders worked with Mike Lee, Republican, across the aisle. He worked with him, and they said, we have to block the United States from continuing to arm Saudi Arabia because they're using these weapons to commit a genocide. They succeeded, it worked, and President Trump vetoed it. Now, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be scared that the guy whose foreign policy, his main achievement in modern history, is trying to stop a genocide, trying to stop us from arming a theocratic dictatorship. What happened, Ted? I thought you were against radical Islam, Muslim extremists. This is the guy who tried to stop arming Muslim extremists. And you're going after him. You're acting like him as Secretary of State would be a bad thing. You know what would happen if Bernie Sanders was Secretary of State? Peace. We would, might, we would maybe make peace with a bunch of countries that we're not at peace with right now. But that's the thing. Ted doesn't want that. Ted's a hawk. Ted's an old school neocon hawk. He loves these wars. He thinks it's radical socialism. To, to stop wars. Imagine fear-mongering over Bernie being Secretary of State. By the way, Bernie, Biden would never pick Bernie as Secretary of State. I wish. But even if Bernie was going to be somewhere in the Biden administration, foreign policy is not his wheelhouse. Everybody knows that. Even though he's done great work on it, he's more uh, economic-focused. So, but even for that, Biden wouldn't pick him. But you see, it's kind of amazing that they're going to Biden's, they're attacking Biden by going after the ally of his who is most popular, Bernie. And like I said, and you're going to hear me say this a lot more moving forward, but Bernie Sanders is, is popular. 
this is this is exactly what we need that we won't get. And I wish that, you know, I wish that the caricature that conservatives have set up in their mind, Democrats, I wish it were true. Because then the Democratic Party would actually be worth fighting for. They would actually be correct on a lot of stuff. They would actually have a moral compass. But unfortunately, the party that Ted Cruz thinks the Democrats are, it's not what they are. Anytime you attack somebody and it's label-based, usually you're doing that because there's no there there. I could go around calling everybody on the right who I disagree with a fascist. I could cut an ad going after Ted Cruz and calling him a fascist. But if that's the extent of the ad, him saying stuff in the 1980s mixed with calling him a fascist, if that's the extent of the ad, that's not a good ad. Because you're just throwing out there buzzwords. You're just trying to rile people up without actually making an argument. And that's what Ted is doing here. He brings up, like, Venezuela as if Bernie would make us Venezuela. Bernie would make us Sweden or Norway or Denmark. He's a social democrat. Mild social democrat. And those countries kick our ass in basically every relevant way. But Bernie is Secretary of State. Yes, he might make it so we don't fight a war against Venezuela, which is a good thing. He might make it so we don't fight a war against Iran, which is a good thing. But no, Ted will fearmonger over that because Ted is a jackass. Isn't it so funny? This is the guy, Donald Trump, not only did he viciously attack Ted Cruz and accuse his dad of killing JFK, he basically called his wife like unfuckable. And what happened? Ted eventually bent the knee like the little cuck he is. He bent the knee. There's that sad picture of Ted Cruz making a phone call for Donald Trump. Ugh. Now Ted Cruz is trying. He's trying hard for like 2024. He wants to be the next Republican president. And so now he's leaning into, like, you know how Trump is all, always on Twitter, always firing from the hip? Ted is now trying to do that but it seems so forced and so obnoxious and so annoying. Ted, give it up. You're never going to be president. You're never going to be president. You got that greasy look like you're just flat out untrustworthy. Even people who like you probably look at you like, that dude is scheming because you got that look to you, dude. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, Ted. Give it a rest. And um, I wish Bernie was going to be prominent in the Biden administration because then Biden would be worth voting for. All right, next. Oh, I got actually, I missed a story. My bad. Okay, I missed this one. So there was a report out in the Washington Post that Bernie Sanders was expressing concern about the Biden campaign behind the scenes. So this was a big story um, last week. Well, Bernie spoke to uh, Ali Velshi and addressed this. Let's see what he had to say. 
Rep. Bernie Sanders has expressed his concerns privately uh, over the Biden camp's approach to financial uh, or economic policy matters and their appeal to more progressive voters. Sanders, the independent Vermont senator, quote, has told associates that Biden is at serious risk of coming up short in the November elections if he continues his vaguer, more centrist approach, according to the people who spoke on the con condition of anonymity to describe sensitive talks. Senator Bernie Sanders joins me now. Good morning, Senator. Good to see you. Thank you for uh, joining me. You've obviously seen these reports. Uh, are they true? No, of course they're not true. I mean, look, what I have said privately is what I have said publicly. And that is, um, I think Biden is in an excellent position to win this election. Uh, but I think we have got to do more as a campaign than just uh, go after Trump. Trump is a disaster. I think most people know it. But we also have to give people a reason to vote for Joe Biden. And Joe has some pretty strong positions on the economy. Uh, and I think we should be talking about that more than we have. Now, we have done probably eight battleground state, uh, battleground state virtual rallies talking to, you know, uh, several million people. Uh, and I think what people want to hear is what Joe is going to do to raise the minimum wage. And he supports a $15 an hour minimum wage. What he's going to do to make sure that we create millions of good-paying jobs in this country. And he has a very strong plan for the infrastructure. He knows that we can create jobs in climate change, which God knows what we need to do, seeing what's going on in the West Coast right now. Uh, they want equal pay for equal work. They want us to expand health care to as many people as possible, lower the cost of prescription drugs. I think those are some of the issues that people want to hear a little bit more from the Biden campaign about. Yeah, so here's why this doesn't make any sense to me. The article says Bernie has been making the point behind the scenes that, hey, this is a little concerning because your whole campaign is like Trump bad. That's exactly what Hillary's was like. How about you focus on the issues? And if you talk about these economic issues, um, that'll help you. And you're more likely to win. And like, if you lean into this stuff, it, it'll, it's important that you do that. And for, for your own good and for the country's good and to defeat Trump. That's what they say Bernie was saying behind the scenes, Bernie comes out and says, no, 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 I wasn't saying that. And then he says that publicly. <laughs> oh, I don't, like, Bernie. Bernie, what are you doing, man? It's just, it's so, it's so strange to see the way everything unfolded from when his campaign got defeated. Like, I really do feel like every step Bernie's made after his campaign ended, he thinks he's nailing it and helping further the left-wing agenda. But actually, everything he's doing is hindering the progress of a left-wing agenda because he didn't really get anything from Biden. Let's be honest, guys. Let's be honest. He didn't really get anything from Biden. All we got was the... Um, the unity commission or whatever it's called, where you had lefties and, and the centrists in Biden's campaign sit down and work out, here's some things we can agree on. And of course, all the most important things that we care about were left off the list because Biden doesn't agree with them. 
But, you know, I've always argued the things that are on the list, he's going to ignore them anyway. Even the things that you nominally agree on, he's going to ignore them. Why? Because you never, you never actually drew any red lines. Bernie pretty much immediately was like, yeah, I'm, I'm for Joe, and we got to defeat Trump, and yay. And, and so the Biden campaign was like, all we have to do is placate the left and give them a couple pats on the head, and they're going to be there. And so that's what they're doing. And the thing that annoys me the most is when there are people on the left who pretend like, no, 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 he's actually getting concessions. No, he's not. How, what would a material concession have been? I've already explained this to you guys before, but Bernie Sanders had leverage in that if the race goes on, he's going to keep getting, in a one-on-one versus Biden, he's going to keep getting 30, 35%. Okay? He could have said, listen, I'm going to stay in this race, the only way I'll get out is if you commit within the first 100 days to doing these 10 executive orders. And you could give him a list of 10 executive orders. And my guess is Biden, he would have worked with Bernie. He would have said, listen, I can't do th- these five, but I'll do these five. Do we have a deal? And Bernie probably would have said yes. And then he would have been able to go out to the left and hold up a sheet of paper and said, I have the word of Joe Biden that within the first 100 days he will do these. These five executive orders, and guys, that's tangible. We have him on the record. We have a time frame wherein he has to do these things. We have the specific policies laid out, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Take that out and put in symbolism and placating and patting on the head. And, you know, that's, that's what upsets me about everything that's happened with Bernie after he dropped out, is that it went from... I'm in, I'm in a fighting mood to get the left agenda implemented, too. All right, but he's not, but we got to work with them. we got to work with them. If you said, I'm not going to campaign for you, and I'm not going to tell my people to vote for you if you don't do my executive orders, he would have made a deal. He wouldn't have wanted to risk another 2016. He would have made a deal, but you didn't get a deal. You got placated. And then now, when a report comes out that's like, hey, Bernie's saying, damn, they really need to focus more on the issues, Why would you deny that report? Why would you come out and be like, no, I didn't say that, but I'm going to say it now? Why would you do that? It's almost like he's afraid of them ever being upset at him or mad at him. He's afraid to ever use power. He's afraid to ever lean in against these people because he's friendly with them. He likes them. But Bernie, you've got to put aside your, your hatred of conflict and your personal feelings. This is bigger than you, my dude. This is bigger than you. It's just so sad. Like, this is really pathetic to, hey, Bernie was keeping it real behind the scenes and saying, oh, my God, the Biden campaign isn't leaning into the issues. And he rushes out to do an interview to say, no, 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 I didn't say that. Well, you should have. You should have said that. You definitely should have. I guess the only, the, the counter argument to this, though, would be Biden's, up big time right now. He's all, as of right now, if the election was today, he'd win handily. So, like, you can't criticize them when they're in the strongest position they've ever been in. You know what I mean? Like, now you're in a position where it's like, people are going to say, Bernie, you lost twice, <laughs> and you're going to give advice to the guy who won and, like, try to force them in a certain direction. No, the time for forcing was much earlier on. Now they're comfortable with the approach that they've taken. I do think it's basically happenstance that it's just like an anti-Trump wave thing happening. 
So in other words, it's not that the strategy of the Biden people is so beautiful. They're just the beneficiaries of a terrible president, you know? Um, but it just, this comes across as weak across the board to me, what Bernie's doing here. He needed to use the leverage previously. He needed to play hardball previously. And then now it's like Biden's up a lot and you're like, do the things I want you to do. He squandered all of his, all of his power, all of his leverage. And, and this is kind of indicative of his lack of, of a strategic approach, I think. Because, like, to pick a moment like now where he's actually up a lot to be like, you should do more of the things I want you to do. It's going to land on deaf ears, my dude. It's going to land on deaf ears. You should have used your leverage and your power when you had leverage and power when you were still in the race. Um, it, just so everybody understands, it pains me to do these segments about Bernie. It really does. I don't want to criticize him all the time. You know, I, I like the guy, and I think we owe him a giant debt of gratitude because he awakened an entire generation politically. So for that, you know, we love him and we respect him. But let's also not pretend like he's a saint or a god or above criticism. Because, yes, a lot of what he's done since ending the campaign has been absolutely heartbreaking and defies reason unless, Really, at the end of the day, he, um, his main goal is to not be Ralph Nader. This is a criticism of him that I think is very, it's correct. When people say that he doesn't, I think he took a lot of the 2016 criticisms to heart, by the way. That, like, he really thought he was responsible for Trump winning because he criticized Hillary Clinton factually in the primary. I think he listened to the media go after him and he felt they're at least half right. And so now he wants to do everything he can to not be blamed again if Biden loses. And, um, but here's the thing, Bernie. If Biden wins, you're going to get no credit. If Biden loses, you are going to get the blame. Like, what he doesn't understand is there's no appeasing dishonest actors. And these people in the media are dishonest. A lot of these corporate Democrats are dishonest. They don't like you. And they're working backwards from their conclusion about how they don't like you. So at the end of the day, if his goal is, I just don't want to be viewed as Ralph Nader, I don't want to be viewed as why Trump had two terms, it's like he took the most bad faith criticisms of him to heart, and he's now acting with all that in mind, which would explain why he's like pushing so hard for Biden and didn't really use his leverage or his power. So I don't know. My hope is Bernie Sanders awakened thousands more Bernie Sanders except these new Bernie Sanders aren't as nice as the old Bernie Sanders, and they don't want to get along with the media and the corporate Democrats, and they want to actually use the power and the leverage that they have. That's my hope. But anyway, listen, yes, it is, we're in a situation now where Joe Biden, it doesn't matter too much what he does, because he's up pretty big, and all he needs to do now is avoid Trump crushing him in the debates, and, um, and that's pretty much it. Like, just avoid total embarrassment in the debates, and then you could hang on and win. And so, yeah, for, for Bernie to say now, like, hey, focus on these things, they're just going to be like, we already got you, dude. We already got you, all right? Relax. So, I mean, 
of course, Biden should focus on these policies and care about these policies, but he doesn't. He actually doesn't. So, you know, it's, like, it's almost like you're forcing him, hey, man, why don't you lie to people and pretend like you're more policy focused than you are? It's kind of like that's what he's begging for. I really, I didn't think we'd be in a similar situation in 2016 again, where it's like the two worst candidates ever. But we're, we're here again. It's Biden. It's Trump. For a guy who follows politics for a living and is on top of it 24-7, in many ways I feel like I'm also anti-politics, <laughs> be watching how everything has degraded over time. Okay, next. So we have an update on the murders that happened in Portland. Now, there was an Antifa guy who killed this Trump guy, this right-wing guy, and that was a huge story. And then what happened was a few days went by or maybe a week or so, and the Antifa guy who killed the Trump guy then got killed himself. And now we have an update. This is from the Washington Post. When police last week surrounded Michael Forrest Raynal, a self-described anti-fascist suspected of fatally shooting a member of a far-right group in Portland, Oregon, the wanted man wasn't obviously armed, a witness to the scene said Wednesday. In fact, according to Nate Dingus, Raynal was clutching a cell phone and eating a gummy worm as he walked his car outside an apartment complex in Lacey, Washington. That's when officers opened fire without first announcing themselves or trying to arrest him. Dingus a 39-year-old who lives in the apartment complex said in a statement shared with the Washington Post. Dingus' account of the September 3rd fatal shooting, first reported by the Oregonian, contradicts details offered by federal authorities who said Reinhold, 48, pulled a gun as members of a fugitive task force tried to arrest him. Two other witnesses also told the Olympian they had seen Reinhold fire a weapon at police. So, um... There's conflicting reports as to exactly what happened, but it's in the realm of possibility, according to some witnesses, that the Antifa guy was just murdered in cold blood himself. Now, President Trump spoke about this in an interview with Fox News. Look at what he said. Marshals went in to get him, and in a short period of time, they ended in a gunfight. This guy was a violent criminal, and the U.S. Marshals killed him. And I will tell you something, that's the way it has to be. There has to be retribution when you have crime like this. There can't be guys standing up that want to fight. They want to fight. That's the president saying, yeah, extrajudicial killings, rock on. There has to be retribution. This is one of those moments where it's like, you know, Trump being an unhinged person. It's like unacceptable. Because how would any other president handle such a situation? We all know every one of them would say something along the lines of, 
listen, we're, we're a civilized country, and we act based off of principles and rule of law, and we have due process. Even though the Antifa guy had murdered somebody previously, and he's a bad dude, you got to arrest him. you got to give him his day in court. This is how civilized societies function. Any president would have said that. Any president with half a brain, of course, would have said something like that. Would, would have tried to calm tensions. You know, would have tried to soothe the situation a little bit because we have standoffs in the street between Antifa and, like, armed right-wing groups. You don't want to pour fuel on that fire. You don't want to pick a side. But he did. He did. said there has to be retribution. We got it taken care of. By the way, by the way, there's another video of Trump at a rally talking about this same issue, and he casually says, like, I told them we're going to go in there, we're going to take care of it. We went in there, and it's taken care of. Talking about this guy being killed. Potentially, he wasn't even a threat to them at the time. Murdered him. U.S. Marshals doing a hit on somebody. We took care of it. It's going to happen. you got to have retribution. So this is flat out an endorsement of extrajudicial killings in the street from the President of the United States. Guys, this, is, this functionally serves as a green light that if you're a right-wing militia, yeah, if you want to take out somebody who's Antifa, we can rationalize it. We can argue it had to be done. We could argue, oh, you're always acting in self-defense. You know? Trump doesn't have it in him to say something like, oh, even though the Antifa guy killed somebody, that's not the way that this country functions. We have due process, and that's the way it should work. You arrest them, you bring them in, they get their day in court. And I hope he gets found guilty and locked away forever, whatever. He couldn't even bring himself to do that. He's arguing for revenge murders. It really is incredible. It really is incredible, man. This is, this is not something... I know that this is said a lot from idiot hosts in mainstream media, but I actually mean it when I say it. This is not like anything any other president would ever say. Endorsing murder in the streets. Almost bragging. In the rally, he did brag about it. He said, we're going to go in there, take care of the problem. We took care of it. So he thinks this was the best outcome. Imagine that there's some sort of secret correspondence where you see Trump greenlighting the U.S. Marshals to murder this guy. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If that happened, if that exists, for a long time, the degradation of our country was slow. But, you know, it feels like feels like post-2016, but definitely in 2020, it's sped up quite a bit. I still can't get out of my head. There was a tweet the other day that showed, you know how California and Oregon, like the sky is bright red in some places and orange in other places? 
there was a tweet that showed, you know, the smoky, like, red-orange sky in the background, right? And then it showed this little truck that has a bright box on it that is playing an automated message on how to stay safe from COVID-19, talking about, you know, hand-washing and wearing a mask. So it's this automated, like, pandemic information truck broadcasting as it drives around and you see this post-apocalyptic reddish sky with the smoke in it. And the person said, imagine even just a year ago if I told you about this moment and Trump is president. Well, then you have to go back, you know, four years, five years. But imagine I told you about this moment. This is America in 2020. Sky of color, you've never seen it before. Pandemic truck giving advice. Reality star person's president. You wouldn't have believed it. You wouldn't believe it. You would be like, don't be ridiculous. This is, are, you, are you crazy? We don't live in a movie. What do you think this is a movie? Freaking, you know, low-budget sci-fi movie? Sci-fi film? The Sci-Fi Network? That's real life, dog. We're living it. The president just endorsed extrajudicial murder. Let that sink in. Okay. Ben Shapiro defended President Trump from the accusation that he's lying about COVID. He's talking, of course, about the Bob Woodward book and the audio tapes that were just released of Trump saying one thing behind closed doors, which contradicted what he was saying publicly. Let's see what Ben says. This does not stop anybody from jumping to the, to the conclusion they wish to jump to, which is that Trump knew full well how bad things were in early February, and then he lied about it. Okay, that is not correct. Okay, let's go through, first of all, what Trump's comments look like, and then we'll parallel them with what exactly Andrew Cuomo's comments look like. Because as you'll see, they're kind of parallel. Everybody was kind of figuring this out at the same time. So the basic story here, which is that Trump knew in February, early February, everyone was going to die from the virus, and then he lied about it. So to what end exactly? Nobody knows. Right? Well, what exactly was the end of it? I, I've yet to hear an excuse for why this would happen. It's sort of like when, when the left claimed that Bush lied to, to lie America into war in Iraq. Why? To, to what end? So we could get involved in a, in a quagmire war for, for a decade? Well, what, what exactly was the purpose? If Trump was lying about the virus, knowing, right, not that he made a mistake, not that he botched it by downplaying it, right, that all of that is fair game, that he lied about it, that Trump lied in order to do what? Seriously, in order to do what? So he knew early February that COVID was going to kill everybody. And then he was just like, I'm going to downplay it for fun. Like why? To, to increase the stock market? But as soon as the, the news broke, the stock market was going to crash. Why? To uphold his electoral possibilities? As soon as COVID hit, it was going to be obvious that Trump had misstated the case, and that was going to hurt him politically. So what would be the purpose of the lie? Again, I think we ought to distinguish between people saying dumb crap, which, again, is a hallmark of this administration, and lying outright, that he is not, he was not lying about COVID. I can't believe that there are people who are convinced that Ben Shapiro is some sort of, like, next-level intellectual with a super high IQ making amazing arguments. That is a smug prick who is making a preposterous argument. That's what you just saw right there. That, what he's saying is silly. It's downright silly. 
Because in my mind, the one major takeaway from the audio tapes released by Bob Woodward is that Trump, if you previously thought, hey, when he's talking at any given moment, he believes what he's saying. If you previously thought that, that's out the window. Because what those audio tapes showed, in no uncertain terms, is that he knew behind the scenes what he was saying publicly about the virus was not true. We, we got him stone cold caught. How can you try to jujitsu your way out of this? He says to Bob Woodward, you know, this is even way worse than your, your flus, even your strenuous flus. We're talking about, you know, 5% versus 1% or less than 1%. That's what he said. And then publicly, he's saying the exact opposite, Benjamin. Publicly, he's like, it's just, you know, it's like the flu. Just treat, just treat it like the flu. That's all you have to do. It's, it's like the flu. He's saying it's like the flu publicly. In private phone calls, a month earlier, he's saying this is way worse than the flu. It's more deadly. It's airborne. It's airborne, he was saying. Wasn't saying that publicly. Was saying that privately. And then, yes, he said, honestly, what I like to do is I like to downplay it because I don't want to cause a panic. So that's him admitting. Yes, I'm downplaying it. I know that what I'm saying is not true, but I'm downplaying it because I don't want to cause a panic. The textbook definition of that, Ben, would be lying. Lying. I'm going to say something else in public than I am behind closed doors. And he tells you his reason. You don't have to speculate. He says, oh, I don't want to cause a panic. That's his reason. Now, we could dig deeper into that if you'd like. And, you know, when you do that, it becomes readily apparent that a lot of the things Ben cited there actually are the reasons. He's flippantly dismissing, like, oh, was he lying? He's lying to... to uh, prevent a panic and to like protect the stock market and to like protect his electoral chances. Yeah. That's, that's like literally exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is, Ben. (laughs) He says it flippantly and dismissively as if he's making a point. No, that's totally plausible. Of course he would like to guys, this is Trump 101. If there's anything Trump learned, it's that in most cases, He could override empirical reality through force of will and bravado and bluster and marketing. This is Trump 101. This is exactly why Trump, when he was caught on tape, grabbed by the pussy, I don't even wait. Remember when he said that? And then all the news outlets, is he going to drop out? He might drop out. I think he might drop out of the race. It's over. This thing is done. What did he do at the next debate? He brought like five of Bill Clinton's accusers and put them in the front row. And he said, you know, with me, I'm not proud of it, but it was just words. It was just locker room talk. With Bill Clinton, it was a lot more than words, folks. It was actions. See those people sitting right there? They're all accusers of Bill Clinton. Not a good guy. Not a good guy, folks. The stuff he did was bad. So what's that, Ben? What's that? That's through force of will and marketing and bluster going over the top and changing the nature of reality by doing that. Of course that's what he wanted to do with the virus. Hey, if I go out there and I say it's not all that bad and I, you know, try to calm people down, maybe we can override the negative effects of it. And we can pretend they do this all the time. Politicians do this all the time. Act like things are wonderful when they're not wonderful. Trump and Pence were bragging about the economy in their in their RNC speeches. The economy's terrible. But what do you do? You pick some indicators like, oh, the stock market's up. Okay, talk about that. Don't talk about the fact that 46% of Americans 
say they're in, quote, serious financial trouble. Don't talk about the fact that over 80% of Americans are living, are living paycheck to paycheck. I can go on and on here. The real unemployment rate is 20%. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. Focus on these little things and try to override it. Yes, of course, this is what he's doing. I can't believe, God, he's so smug with his downplaying of it. Yes, he wants to protect his electoral chances in 2020. He didn't want the panic. He wanted to keep the stock market up. Of course, of course, of course. And he's smugly dismissing it. But honestly, the best part of that clip was buried in it. I'm sure you guys caught it, but he, he said, oh, the left claimed that Bush lied us into Iraq. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Then at this point, there is no the left claimed. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz and Bill Kristol and David Frum, they lied us into Iraq. They lied us into Iraq. They even moved the goalposts from when they started versus you go you know, down the road a little bit more, deeper into the war a few years in, and they started changing their rationale. At first it was like, oh, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. And the implication was he's going to use them on us. Then they softened that to, all right, well, he's probably... If he has them, he's not going to use them on us, but he has them and he shouldn't have them, so we're going to go in. And actually, it started with Saddam Hussein worked with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. That was the first claim. He's responsible for 9-11 because he worked with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Then that became, okay, there's no evidence of him working with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. He's got, he's got uh, weapons of mass destruction, and the implication was he's going to use them on us. Then they changed it to, all right, he might not use them on us, but he's got them. Then they changed it to, okay, he doesn't have weapons of mass destruction, but he's just a really bad dictator. A bad dictator who we supported at the height of his atrocities. We gave him the funding and support when he was massacring Kurds. So what do you mean? Of course they lied. To, of course they lied us into that war. Are you insane to claim otherwise? Have you been living under a rock? See, this is the, the delusional mindset of the hardcore conservatives of like, America is always good by definition. What we do is by definition defensive in nature and for the public good across the world. It's the most childish belief I've ever heard in my life. The United States is not above the same things that other empires were subject to throughout history. You think that they don't weigh at all oil into the calculation for continuing the war or mineral wealth, the trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan or the the amazing amount of money tied to the military-industrial complex with these defense contractors getting no big contracts, you don't think that weighs in at all? Of course it weighs in. It absolutely weighs in. The left claims that Bush lied us into war. Why? Because Saddam Hussein was no longer acting as a puppet to the United States of America. That's why. That's why. Remember George W. Bush saying, Saddam tried to kill my daddy. When you are, become a rogue state and you don't subject yourself to U.S. imperialism, the U.S. tends to overthrow you. It's what, we're doing, it's what we're trying to do in Venezuela. It's what we're trying to do in Iran. These are countries that are not under the thumb of the United States. They're not subjecting themselves to U.S. imperialism and our corporatocracy. And so we try to get rid of them. This is the history of the U.S. post-World War II. Look at everything we did in Central America and South America. Of course, we had we overthrow democratically elected governments all the time, all the time. He really argued. 
the left claimed Bush lied us into Iraq. So you, so you think he didn't. Which claim do you believe? Did Saddam work with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda? Is that the one you believe? That was the original story. Is that what you believe, Ben? He's so stupid, and people think he's smart. Jesus Christ, man, just lying to his audience. I, in his case, I'll be kind and say, I don't know if he's lying. I'll just go with insanely wrong about every single thing he's saying. Okay. All right, next. Squeaky Benjamin, get away. He was in my graphic, now he's gone. Tucker Carlson appeared to go full science denier on his show regarding climate change. Tragedy on a massive scale. When something this terrible happens, decent people pause. They put their own interests aside for a moment. They consider how they can help. We've seen that kind of selflessness before in this country. This is, remember, the anniversary of 9-11. But there are others for whom altruism is an unknown concept. Self-interest is all they know. These people do not pause. They never do. They relentlessly press forward for any advantage under any circumstances. They see human suffering as a means to increase their personal power. These are the people who turn funerals into political rallies and feel no shame for doing it. As Americans burn to death, people like this swung into action immediately. They went on television with a partisan talking point. Climate change, they said, caused these fires. They didn't explain how exactly that happened. How did climate change do that? They didn't tell us, but they just kept saying it. In the hands of Democratic politicians, climate change is like systemic racism in the sky. You can't see it, but rest assured it's everywhere, and it's deadly. And like systemic racism, it is your fault. The American middle class did it. They caused climate change. They ate too many hamburgers. They drove too many SUVs. They had too many children. Literally nobody ever argued that last thing that Tucker's saying. He's trying to straw man the left and caricature the left. Like, you guys are blaming the American middle class and how they eat hamburgers and have kids. You're blaming them for climate change, aren't you? No, Tucker. Actually, the exact opposite is true. 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. Climate change is not a problem that's an individual issue. That, like, you have to do it yourself, and you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you've got to make the right decisions as a consumer or whatever. No, that's liberal claptrap nonsense. This is about the system. This is about you have to change things at the government level from the top down in order to really fight back against climate change. But he's... Shifting the issue and obfuscating, trying to make it look like I, Tucker, am the defender of the middle class and these crazy lefties are against you and they want to blame you for climate change. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. Okay. um, Now, the other point he made is he compared climate change to, and I quote, systemic racism in the sky. So what he's trying to do is deny the existence of climate change because denies the existence of systemic racism. And he added in the sky if it wasn't clear enough for you. He's being 
very, very, very clear here. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that these wildfires are caused by climate change in the same way that there's systemic racism in the sky everywhere. I mean, we could get into the whole conversation about systemic racism. I'll put that aside because that's not the main point of of this uh, segment here. But he's going full climate science denier. I mean, that's insane to me. Yes, it absolutely is true. You can say, and scientists do say, any individual weather event cannot be blamed on climate change. You cannot say any individual weather event is because of climate change. But what you can do, and this is even more devastating, is you look at the macro trends. And when you look at the macro trends, climate scientists will tell you everything has gotten worse and more pronounced over the years because of climate change. So we have, you know, more powerful hurricanes and more of them We have wildfires that are bigger, that are worse, and it's as a direct result of this, you know. Uh, There are all these different extreme weather events that come about because of climate change. Yes, you can't pick any individual event and say, this is because of climate change. But if you look at the macro trend, there's no downplaying it. There's no denying it. It's all getting worse. And... It is getting worse because the climate is changing. Now, that might trigger you, Tucker, but that's a scientific fact. And I thought you guys were supposed to be the facts over feelings guy. Turns out, no, it's feelings over facts if the facts happen to bolster a left-wing narrative. I mean, that's what it is. The left is correct in talking about this issue through the lens of climate change, and he's triggered by that. And so he attacks them and then strawmans them as going after the middle class. Nobody's going after the middle class by talking about this. And by the way, this is the angle. This is why I do. I'm mad at the left for not arguing this stuff better because it should be pretty easy to make the case that when we talk about a green new deal, emphasis on the new deal part. You know, the thing FDR did that helped get us out of the Great Depression and give people jobs and redistribute wealth to the majority of people. Emphasis on the New Deal part of the Green New Deal in that we can create millions of good-paying jobs that are tied to a renewable green economy where we no longer need fossil fuels. But you bring that up, and then, of course, they get goofy, and they're like, oh, yeah, you want to ban airplanes, huh? (laughs) For once in your life, can you engage honestly on this stuff? For once in your life. So anyway, uh, you know, Tucker going full climate science denier. Um, man, that's pathetic. Man, that's pathetic. And he's gone full, even with the Trump and the law and order thing and the rioters and the looters, he's gone all in on like, oh, my God, this is the biggest issue in the country. Oh, my God. So in other words, COVID and the economy are the populist guys ignoring the issues that are most important to the American people right now, according to every single poll almost seems not at all populist to me. Okay. We take a quick break. When we come back, I got Glenn Greenwald fighting for Julian Assange on Fox. Stay right there.
Alright, I'm back, bitch. I am back. Alright, we're gonna... I gotta show you what Glenn did on Fox News, because I do think <clears throat> it was clever. What he did was clever. Glenn Greenwald went on Tucker Carlson's show to talk about the U.S. extradition of Julian Assange, or the attempted extradition of Julian Assange. Um, Let's watch, and then I'll tell you why he did it. So, Glenn, um, thanks for coming on. I think a lot of people have heard for years that Julian Assange is a bad guy who hurt the United States. Now the United States is going to bring justice in this case. What's your view of it? Tell us what we should know in three minutes about Julian Assange. Let's remember, Tucker, that the criminal investigation into Julian Assange began by the Obama administration because in 2010, WikiLeaks published a slew of documents, none of which harmed anybody, not even the government claims that. That was very embarrassing to the Obama administration. It revealed all kinds of abuses and lies that they were telling about these endless wars that the Pentagon and the CIA are determined to fight. They were embarrassing to Hillary Clinton. And so they conducted, they initiated a grand jury investigation to try and prosecute him for reporting to the public. He worked with the New York Times, The Guardian, to publish very embarrassing information about the endless war machine, about the neocons who were working in the Obama administration. To understand what's happening here, we can look at a very similar case, which is one that President Trump recently raised, which is the prosecution by the Obama administration as well of Edward Snowden for the same reason, that he exposed the lies that James Clapper told. He exposed how there's this massive spying system that the NSA and the CIA control that they can use against American citizens. And obviously, this isn't coming from President Trump. He praised WikiLeaks in 2016 for informing the public. He knows firsthand how these spying systems that Edward Snowden exposed can be abused and were abused in 2016. This is coming from people who work in the CIA, who work in the Pentagon, who insist on endless war, and who believe that they're a government unto themselves, more powerful than the president. I posted this weekend a speech from Dwight Eisenhower warning that this military-industrial complex, what we now call the deep state, is becoming more powerful than the president. Chuck Schumer warned right before President Obama, President Trump took office that President Trump challenging the CIA was foolish because they have many ways to get back at anybody who impedes them. That's what these cases are about, Tucker. They're punishing Julian Assange and trying to punish Edward Snowden for informing the public about things they have the right to know about the Obama administration. They're basically saying to President Trump, you don't run the country even though you were elected. We do. And they're daring him to use his pardon power to put an end to these very abusive prosecutions, one which resulted in eight years of punishment for Julian Assange for telling the truth, the other one which resulted in seven years of exile for Edward Snowden of being in Russia simply for informing the public and embarrassing political officials who are very powerful. So in 30 seconds, the president could pardon Julian Assange right now and and end this. Is that correct? He could have pardoned him and Edward Snowden, and there's widespread support across the political spectrum on both the right and the left for doing both. It would be politically advantageous for the president. The only people who would be angry would be Susan Rice, John Brennan, Jim Comey, and James Clapper, because they're the ones who both of them exposed. Glenn gets a lot of crap every time he goes on Tucker's show. Um, 
there's a lot of people on the left who basically say that, you know, Tucker Carlson's show is, what did I see on Twitter? The White Supremacist Power Hour or something like that. So he gets, he gets a lot of crap. People, you know, despise when Glenn does this, and they're very vocal about it. And they almost view Glenn as like the enemy for doing such a thing. But here's what's fascinating about this segment. This was absolutely strategic, and it's obvious. Go back and watch it again. The way that Glenn is talking about this is to try to plant a seed in Donald Trump's mind, hoping Trump is watching it, trying to plant a seed to get Edward Snowden and Julian Assange pardoned. Because look at the way he framed all of it. Mr. President, the deep state definitely does not want you to do this. All those bad people who hate you are the people who are in favor of punishing Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. So if you want to, you could snub the deep state, snub all these people who hate you by pardoning Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. Notice, Snowden wasn't even part of the segment. But Glenn brought him up anyway. Why? Because he's trying to use this time slot effectively, knowing there's a decent chance the president is watching. And, by the way, and here's a little cherry on top. You know when this was? This was at the very end of Tucker's show. You know who comes on after Tucker? Sean Hannity. You know who watches Sean Hannity every night? Donald Trump. I think he watches Tucker. I don't think he watches every night like he does Sean Hannity. So they did this segment. They put it at the end, which was strategic. And Glenn crafted all of his arguments, basically trying to get Donald Trump to watch this and go, you know what? I think I'm going to pardon Julian. And I think we're going to pardon Edward Snowden. A lot of people are saying it's the right thing to do. A lot of people are saying it's, it's a wonderful idea. So I'm all over it. I'm going to do that now. So listen, I honestly, I give props to Glenn for doing this. And even though I, you know, I despise Tucker as much as the next person, I give props to him for facilitating this and allowing this to happen where Glenn is basically trying to get Snowden and Assange pardoned by making a case directly to Trump. You can tell. If you watch it again, you can tell everything Glenn is saying there. He's saying with the thought in mind that Trump is watching this. How can I convince him to try to pardon these guys? And Glenn Greenwald is a very persuasive person when he puts his mind to something. And, um, yeah, I, just, I, hope, I hope Trump saw it, and I hope he actually does it. You know, the problem with Trump is he's somebody – he has no real – convictions. And when you have no real convictions, it's very easy to be swayed by the last person that was in the room. You know, and I think this happened so many times in a variety of issues. Foreign policy is a great example where he'll tweet like, we're getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And then the next day his generals will be like, ha ha, no, we're not. And Trump, you know, you know what? You're right. I don't think we are. It's a good point. <laughs> like he's a path of least resistance kind of guy. And so when he packed his administration full of Wall Street and neocons, He's going to listen to Wall Street. He's going to listen to the neocons because they're the last person in the room talking to him. I think he trusts Pence, and Pence is a very Pence credits his freaking career to Rush Limbaugh. He's a hardcore right winger in every sense. So if that's the last guy in the room when Trump's making a lot of these decisions, yeah, he's going to end up doing the wrong thing. You just have to hope that, 
like something like this lands with him because Trump likes Tucker. Glenn is appealing to Trump in the personal way that he needs to be appealed to. Again, this is how you know it was strategic because the way Glenn is making the arguments. Oh, sir, the deep state who have been very, very unfair to you, they want to punish Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. You could do the opposite, though. It's all, it's all crafted for a petty, narcissistic man. So anyway, I hope it works. I don't, there are some people who are so partisan that they would like, like if Trump were to pardon Assange and Snowden, they would instantly flip on Assange and Snowden. But like, I'm not a partisan hack. I don't care. I've always had the position that Assange and Snowden didn't do anything wrong and are heroes and should be released and should be pardoned. I've always had that position. So it wouldn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican or otherwise, somebody else that does something that helps them. I'm going to be in favor of that thing and give credit where credit is due. But he hasn't done anything yet. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, Fingers crossed. Okay, next. Here's something I saw last week. This popped up on my Twitter feed. And um, I haven't been able to get it out of my mind since. Let's see if the same thought occurs to you as you watch. Gators helping Gators, veterinarians at the University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine are helping this injured alligator get back on his feet. And several doctors were needed to treat the 660-pound reptile. It had a, uh, have a bone infection. A gator named Bob will be monitored by the hospital before being returned to its home. Gators appear to get better health care than Americans. Come on, man. Seeing the gator, like, in the stretcher and, you know, it's kind of like strapped down and it looks like they got some sort of drug that's knocking it out in it. Like, seeing that and all the attention it's getting with all the people dressed in their official vet uniforms or and, and like, rolling it down the hallway, I'm looking at that like... We have, what, 30 million people in this country that don't have health insurance? 30 million? We have between 45,000 and 60,000 Americans that die every year because they don't have basic health care. And you see a gator with a bone infection getting better treatment than many working people. That's the other thing, is that We have Medicaid and we have Medicare. So if you're very poor or if you're older, yes, you get health care. If you are a working person and you don't get insurance through your job, a lot of those people are not covered because they might not make enough money and they might feel like it costs too much to get it and I don't get a subsidy or of enough or enough of a subsidy under Obamacare people got more subsidies but now there's been a war waged on Obamacare and it's been destroyed in a thousand ways so there are plenty of people who are working people who just don't really make enough money they're not poor enough to get Medicaid 
and they're not wealthy enough to really afford their health insurance. So they're in this middle zone, and they're screwed. And a lot of these people are the people who end up going bankrupt. And I think about that as I watch a gator about to get surgery. And I'm like, holy cow. It really is true. The other thing that is, uh, I think comes across as pretty obvious, even though it's unfortunate, is that people seem to care a hell of a lot more about dogs than homeless people. I love dogs, so I'm not saying that as like a snub against dogs. I'm just saying that as in like, I mean, the people should really, really matter. We have probably around 500,000 homeless people in this country right now. And because of the economy imploding in COVID, 28 million are going to be on the brink of homelessness. 46% of Americans are having, quote, serious financial problems, serious financial problems. I think our priorities are messed up, man. I really do. I really do. I've never gotten healthcare as good as as the Gator. <laughs> Look at all the love and care and attention the Gator is getting. They should hook me up with whatever that drug is that knocked him out. Uh, well, I don't want to end up like Michael Jackson, but that seems like fun to me. What was it called? Propofol? <laughs> I wonder if that's what the Gator's on. Is the Gator on Propofol? <laughs> I don't know where this segment has meandered to, but there you have it. Okay, now, <clears throat> this is, um, this says everything about this election, doesn't it? Jeff Stein of the Washington Post tweeted something the other day. Let me change the graphic as I talk to you guys here. Um, This is from a CNBC poll. Okay? Here's what it says. The mental and physical fitness of both candidates has been brought up in various ways during their campaigns, and majorities of likely voters believe that both men are mentally unfit. 55% of likely national voters, 51% of likely battleground voters say Trump is mentally unfit to be president. 52% of likely national and battleground voters say Biden is mentally unfit to be president. And then they asked them about their uh, physical fitness too. 51% of likely national voters and 52% of voters in battleground states say Trump is physically fit to be president. That's only that's a tiny majority. 57% of national voters and 54% of battleground voters say Biden is physically fit to be president. So, okay, put aside the physical one. I mean, those numbers are still sad and low, but we could put that aside. Um, the majority of the American people think the two candidates for president in the general election are mentally unfit to be president, mentally unfit to be president. I was naive in 2016. I really thought in 2016, it cannot get worse than this. It can't get worse than this. We have like the career insider status quo 
politician versus this unhinged reality star buffoon with an IQ of 12. And then fast forward, and here we are. We're in a situation that's like equally as bad. Because you got Joe Biden, who's, the sun is setting on that dude fast, isn't it? Sun is setting on that dude fast. So I do think he's having issues with his mind not working properly. Um, And in the case of Trump, I just think he's such a petty, vapid, narcissistic man that that's why people think, like, oh, he's unfit. Because he's just, like, so unhinged and self-obsessed that none of the decisions come across as, like, rational. None of it's logical or thought through. It's all just, like, impulsive. He's He's... the human id. So he's unfit in a slightly different way than Biden is unfit. But I got to kind of agree with the majority of the American people here. Now, obviously, it's a different, you know, it's not the same majority. It's not like the 52% who said, or 55% of national voters who say Trump is unfit, that's the same as the 52% that say Biden's unfit. It's obviously like very, very partisan down the line divide here. But still, I do think that, you know, in a previous era, you asked people about, I don't know, Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, let's say, in, in the 96 election. I do think the numbers wouldn't have been this high. It wouldn't have been a majority of voters, say, mentally un- the other one's mentally unfit to be president. It probably only would have been like 20% or something. So, like, yes, there is a, a steady, pronounced decline. And this is pathetic. And you have to say, especially on the Democratic side, like, I get the Trump thing to some extent because he curb stomped everybody in, in the primary where he was, like, calling them all out to their face and destroying Ted Cruz. And it was actually enjoyable to watch. He was attacking Bush and the Iraq war. It was fun to watch when Trump did that. But on the Democratic side, I'm even more pissed because you guys had the option of a guy who's for all the policies that you say you're for a genuinely moral, ethical man who's intelligent and has ideological concerns to help the American people, a guy who would have given you Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ended the wars and a Green New Deal. You had that option, but people went for Biden because electability was the most important thing to them. So they didn't vote for who they liked the most. They voted for Who's the person that I think in the general election is more likely to definitely beat Trump? So it was this meta game of like, I'm not going to vote for the person I like. I'm going to vote for the person who I think other people are most comfortable with who would beat Trump. And so here we are. They ended up picking a guy who's, you know, who can barely string together a coherent sentence if he's not on some sort of pills. That's where we are now. It's amazing to me that this country, we make the decisions that we make. We, we put these two people in this position, and then we turn around and everybody's like, you do realize we're all a bunch of idiots, right? And these people are mentally unfit, correct? Isn't that wild? I think that's so wild. That's the most wild thing ever. <laughs> the American people voted for them, and then the American people are like, oh, these guys are crazy. They're not even, they don't even have the state of mind to be able to do this. So why'd you vote for them? Guys, buckle up. I know 2020 is bad, but 
you know, we might be we might be in a position where every consecutive year will be just as bad, if not worse. All right, final story of the day. Let me do it for you. <clears throat> Corporations and the U.S. government are continuing to screw workers, but they just made it even worse. This headline pissed me off. Stores ended hazard pay for their workers. They're still spending hundreds of millions of dollars buying back their stock. All right, so let's just say it up front. Stock buyback should be illegal. They were illegal until I believe it was the 1980s, and I think it was Reagan who changed it. But stock buybacks were illegal Now they're not, and now, during a pandemic and a depression, these stores that were doing hazard pay ended their hazard pay, so they're going to pay their workers less even though the pandemic's still going on, and they're going to take hundreds of millions and do stock buybacks. Unacceptable. So I'll give you some of the the companies that are doing this. Kroger, they bought back more than $200 million of shares during the latest quarter. And um, the board authorized $1 billion in additional repurchases on Friday. Um, And they stopped their hazard pay in May. They did $2 per hour pay bump during the pandemic. And then they got rid of it, even though the pandemic's still going on, and they're doing a $1 billion worth of stock buybacks. That's insane. Dollar General is another. Their board of directors last month greenlighted $2 billion in stock buybacks. Meanwhile, big lots. Board also authorized a $500 million stock buyback program last month. Big Lots had a $2 hourly pay bump that they ended in early July. The system, I mean, I can't. How many months are we in now to the pandemic? How many months are we in? The government gave you a one-time $1,200 stimulus check. One time. A lot of people are still out of work, man. Can't make ends meet. I told you, recent poll, NPR, 46% of the country is in, quote, serious financial problems. Serious financial problems. 46%, that's half the country. We're talking about major bills not being able to pay. Rent, mortgage, food, 30 million people food insecure. And I think that's a low number. And look at how, so the government's abandoned you. And what do they do? They just gave trillions to the corporations. They use this as an excuse to do corporate socialism and hand over a tremendous amount of money to the people who give them money for their campaigns, the heads of these corporations. So they use the pandemic as an excuse to turn over the keys of the treasury, to let the wealthy and the corporations loot the treasury. The corporations, the little they did, now they're getting rid of that and doing stock buybacks, which is just a way to juice up their stock price. That's all it is. And so instead of paying workers more, they're just going to juice up stock prices and try to give their shareholders more money. I mean, this is class war. Let's call it what it is. The wealthier waging class war on workers. Now, um, I want to show you what's going on in the rest of the developed world as, as this is happening here. French, the French government, to continue paying up to 84% of salaries for furloughed workers until next summer due to prolonged economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. Isn't that incredible? The French government is going to pay 84% of 
the salary for furloughed workers until next summer. Until next summer. See, this is how a country that functions, this is what they do when there's a pandemic and everybody's in trouble and nobody knows what to do. This is what a government does when the people, the government is scared of the people in France. Here in the U.S., the people are scared of the government. In France, they have to represent the people because they're scared of the people because they'll all strike. They'll do a general strike at the drop of a hat. And so they know, okay, we've got to provide material well-being. We've got to do what we've got to do. 84%. Imagine sitting at home, furloughed worker, basically on a vacation this entire time. You're making 84% of what you were making when you were working. A lot of developed countries did similar things to this. We got a one-time $1,200 stimulus check. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And people are on the brink of financial ruin, if not already there. So if we're not going to do the salary idea, then we at least got to pay people a UBI. Because this is getting, this is out of hand. Our entire system in the U.S. is a scam, and this stuff proves it. All right, guys. I love you, baby. I'm done. Everybody have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.